Uh, good morning, everybody. Good to be here with you. Um, we're going to continue our series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And so if you brought your Bibles or you have one on your device or you just want to look at the screen, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 5, and I'll be reading the whole chapter. It's not super long, so don't worry. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is God's word. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Well, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of 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 the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. And there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, what do our lives have to do with Ashdod and Gath and Ekron? And tumors. Oh Lord, 
please help us to understand what you have for us here because there is truth here to help our hearts and souls. And so as we look at this ancient text and this ancient world, would you connect it to our lives here so that we might serve you better? We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name, amen. All right. So this is an interesting passage. Um, And for those who haven't been with us on the journey through 1 Samuel, know that Israel, everything that's happening in this passage is happening outside of Israel. Because the ark of God was taken and captured because Israel had just suffered a terrible loss at the hands of the Philistines. They had lost a great battle. 30,000 Israeli soldiers were killed and the ark of God was taken. This was one of the lowest points in Israel's history. There might be two points when the people of Israel were, were in danger of being just snuffed out. One of them was the exile, and the other one was right here. This is a tribal people. 30,000 of their men were just killed, and their, their symbol of national unity was just taken. They were almost extinct. And, and you remember that the, the chapter ended last week with the question, where is the glory? They thought God had been defeated. But here we get a story about what, what God does when his people aren't around. <laughs> what does God do when you're not around? <laughs> what does God do behind the scenes? He reestablishes his glory. And without them even knowing it, he's defeating their enemies without them even lifting a hand. And in the midst of this passage, there are lessons for us to learn. And so let's dig in. Let's start just with verses 1 and 2. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So the first thing I want you to notice here is the repetition. The Philistines captured the ark. And then in the very next verse it says, the Philistines took the ark. Well, I thought you just told me that. Back-to-back references. And if you go back to the previous chapter, you'll see that this is the fourth repetition of that phrase in four verses. Now you need to know that, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, when you wanted to emphasize something, you didn't have a highlighter, you didn't have italics, you didn't have bold. And so if you really wanted to highlight something, what you do is you repeated it. And so here four times in four verses, it says that the ark of God was captured. Um, he's making us, the author is making us feel the weight of this. This is like a screenwriter building up tension before there's a release. And notice that the, the verbs that are used in these first two verses, it's the Philistines who are in control. They capture the ark. They bring it. They take it. They brought it. And they set it up. The Philistines are the ones acting. They seem to be in complete control of the ark. 
in all of it, they're saying, we have, we have complete control over these people and their God. And finally, notice where they bring the ark. They bring it into the house of Dagon, and they set it up beside Dagon. Now, the Philistines would have been um, polytheists. They would have believed in many gods, and each city in Philistine had its own representative god, but there was one big daddy god of them all, and that god was Dagon. Dagon was their national, uh, national deity. He was actually the, the god of corn. If we would be polytheist pagans, we might be into Dagon. I just, I don't know. But they bring the ark into Dagon's palace. Here's the thing. Why not just destroy the ark? Why bring it into the house of Dagon? Well, if you're a polytheist, why destroy a good God when he might be useful? And so they bring the ark representing the power of Israel's God, and they set it up next to him, it says. And the idea is now that the God of Israel, whatever power he might have, would be subservient to Dagon. Whatever power the God of Israel had would not now be marshaled to advance Dagon's priorities. So the the ark is like a prisoner of war, there to serve in the court of a rival king. And it says that the, the people of Ashdod came the next day to Dagon's temple to see it. You see, this would have been a great victory and like a national championship team, like coming home with a trophy and having like a parade throughout the city. We can imagine the same kind of atmosphere in Ashdod with the ark. And everybody was apparently invited to come and see the trophy the next day. You can imagine the signs on the lampposts advertising the great trophy representing the Philistines' victory over God. Come and scope it out. 10 a.m. tomorrow, be there or be square. Well, how did that all work out? Verse 3 And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark, and the head of Dagon in both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Uh Uh-oh, something happened during the night. Something happened while they were asleep. We have no description of what happened during the night. It all happens behind the scenes. But something happened during the night, and it was obvious in the morning. Keep that in mind. That idea will come back to it. And what happened? Dagon was face down before the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the language is very carefully selected. These are the words of worship. Dagon is prostrate before the ark in a posture of worship. They don't know what happened, but it doesn't look good. Dagon has fallen and he can't get up. And there is something that is supposed to be comedic about this. You can imagine the priests at Dagon's temple saying, Hey, everybody, stay over by the ropes. Thanks for coming to our latest exhibit. Uh, But stand over there for a moment. Uh, We're just, Dagon had a bad evening. And we're just going to prop him back up where he belongs. And imagine a god and you have to prop him back up. What kind of god is that? But who knows? Maybe it was an earthquake that nobody else experienced. Or a gust of wind in the temple that no one else felt. Let's try again tomorrow. Let's prop up Dagon back into his place. But the next day, things get even worse. It says, when er, when uh, they rose early the next morning... Behold, a new day dawns, and while no one is looking, things get even worse for Dagon. Not only is he lying there prostrate before the ark again, but now his head and his hands are cut off. And the language there, they're not broken off from the fall, they're severed, cut. No hands with which to fight, No head with which to speak or boast, just a stump. The portrait was clear. Dagon had been defeated and in dramatic fashion too. And that display of divine power had this impact on the Philistines for years to come. In verse 5 it says, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now we don't know exactly when the book of 1 Samuel was written, but when it says to this day, it's at least 150, 200 years conservatively, the priests wouldn't step on the place because of what, what they experienced was so impactful to them. Man, they thought they'd won. After all, God's people had been defeated. But the defeat of God's people did not mean the defeat of their God. And apparently God doesn't need his people to win his battles. Because without a soldier, without a sword... Without a man or a woman or anyone at all, God himself takes care of Dagon swiftly. Let's keep going. What about the, what about the armies of the Philistines, which had so much strength? Verse, uh, verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So we'll stop there just for a second. 
because there's two comments here. There's words and concepts here that are going to help us understand the rest of the text. So first, it says the hand of the Lord, and that's a significant phrase throughout throughout the passage. It occurs uh, any number of times in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And uh, just know that, remember that Dagon has no hands. He's impotent. He has no power to control or to move events in the world. But, but the hand of the Lord is, is heavy. And the word for heavy there is the same word for glory. You remember that from last week? Heavy and glory come from the same Hebrew root word. And so it's saying the hand of the Lord was glorious. At the end of the last chapter, the question is, where is the glory? Where God's glory is gone. Well, we see the Lord reestablishing his glory in this text. Um, and then what, what we see in the rest of the text is the ark go on a tour. And like an exodus tour of, of Philistia taking care of business. And so it says, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel be sent to Gath. That's like, send it to Omaha. Well, apparently they didn't have relatives in Omaha. You know what I mean? They just were trying to get rid of it. And then it goes there and, and the same thing happens. God's taking care of business with these folks who had been aggressors against his people. And then the people at Gath are like, let's send it to Ekron. Let's send it down to Iowa. And the, but finally, the people at Ekron are like, they get wise. And they're like, this strategy isn't working. Let, let's call all of the Philistine shot callers together. And what they do is they decide to send it back to Israel. You know, it's so, the ark is just on its own journey, not only taking care of business, but also gets its own ride home. Like his people don't even have to come and get it. Israelites don't have to call an Uber. God goes home by, the ark gets captured, takes care of business without anybody raising a hand, and even gets sent home without the help of a priest or a person from Israel. He's fine on his own. And look at the response of the Philistines to all of this at the end. It's really impactful. It says, they cried out to heaven. To heaven. At that point, they recognize that Israel's God is the true God. And they direct their hearts to him. They say, whoa. Have you ever cried out to heaven? It's the first smart thing that anyone does in the whole passage. Ever cry out to the God who loved you and designed you and sustained you and is gracious to you? It's an interesting text. 
Not only because God is the main actor, but because his people aren't even present. They aren't even mentioned. They aren't even witnesses to what's happening. And that's important to understanding what this passage means for us. All of this was happening behind the scenes, as it were. If you had a split screen, what would the Israelites be doing while their God was taking care of business? Weeping. They thought it was over. It looked like complete defeat. They thought their nation was done for because of what they had experienced. But at the very same time, if you had a screen of what's going on in Ashdod, in Dagon's temple, in Ekron, and in Gath, what's God doing? Reestablishing his glory. Working behind the scenes to take care of the enemies that Israel couldn't take care of themselves. And even in Philistine, even in Ashdod, The Philistines thought they had won a great victory. But what a surprise they got when morning came. They went to bed so boastful, so proud. And early in the morning, they went to Dagon's temple expecting to find a defeated God. But he was not there. He had risen from the ashes of defeat. Yahweh lives. And the day that the Philistines hoped would be the day of Dagon became the day of Yahweh. And we're just reminded that this is the way with our God. When it seems like all hope is lost. When it seems like complete defeat. In the midst of tears and the the darkness of night, God is busy behind the scenes preparing a great salvation. It's just the way our God is. Think about another night when darkness covered all the land. When God seemed humiliated. When all seemed lost. When it looked like the kingdom had failed. And think about God's enemies surrounding the cross boastful, mocking. He had been nailed to the cross, the epitome of defeat. He had been stuck in a tomb. But something happened in the night. And the women who came to the tomb expecting a defeated God, he was not there. He had risen. Death had fallen. Lay prostrate. Worshiping the God of life who gave his son for you and me. What we thought was the day of death turned to the day of Jesus. The day of the Lord. And Paul reminds us of what happened behind the scenes that night. He said that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. All without any of us lifting up a finger. What do we learn from such a text? 
well, golly, there's a lot to learn. (laughs) There's a God to be worshipped who doesn't need us at all. But the way I'd put it is this. God is going to win with or without us. Christians today are barraged with statistics that paint a dismal future for the church. The statisticians proclaim an ever-shrinking minority of Christians who have a, quote, biblical worldview. And that Christianity is under attack from all sides. And it can add up in our minds and hearts to this frightening scenario. As if we're the last few remaining Christians in the world. And you know, Christians from around the world are looking in and saying, you guys have it pretty good, you know, y'all. But we can think it's up to us to win the cultural battle. And so we fight. And we argue. And we blog. And we post. And we worry. And we try to win. But in trying to win the argument or the culture war, we often lose the battle for the hearts of the people around us. We so often lose our character. We so often lose our way. It's not to say that we don't vote or engage or give a reason for the hope that is within us, but when we are defensive, the louder our arguments become, doesn't it seem to backfire? Causing Christians who already are, are pigeonholed into being socially backwards and culturally inept, sometimes we fit the, the stereotype. But what if the answer to Christianity's problems lies not in increasing our defenses, but increasing our trust in God? If anything comes through loud and clear in this passage, isn't it that God can take care of himself? But it seems that modern Christians have forgotten this, believing that God needs us to speak for him every moment, defend his honor and his priorities like he can't speak for himself. Turning from a defensive posture often requires rethinking our concept of God. He is not fragile. He is not wounded. He is not threatened. And neither is the church. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against this thing. And so so, the defeat of the church is not the defeat of our God. And he doesn't need us to defend him, only to represent him. If we spent all of our efforts instead of defending God to representing his heart to the world, it would be a different world. Here's the thing. Here's the, like, the, the thing you remember. When you know that God wins in the end, you can focus on winning hearts rather than winning arguments or culture wars. And that's good news, isn't it? Our God wins. And lastly, For those going through dark stuff, who feel like all things have failed, who feel like Israel did in that moment, whatever your situation is, and you think there's no hope, 
Know that. It doesn't matter what you're going through now. God is at work behind the scenes. And he wins in the end for you. For all of us. It doesn't matter which direction the nation goes. It doesn't matter what the terrorists do. It doesn't matter what Russia does. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who's elected to office. It doesn't matter who sits in the Supreme Court or how they act. It doesn't matter what the celebrities or media says. Nothing changes the fact that at the end of the day, our Lord reigns. And he will win and life will win with or without us. So it doesn't matter what you're going through or how hard it is or how confusing it is. Jesus has won the battle that matters. And we will rise. Death lays fallen prostrate before the God of life. And today he, with a voice that roars like the oceans, sonorous as light, says, I love you. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you that we can even travel to Ashdod and Dagon's temple and learn stuff about you. Thank you that every story in scripture, no matter how weird, points to, points to Jesus and leads us into your heart. Thank you that you are a big God. Help us, Lord, not to be defensive people who lose our way trying to win arguments rather than trying to win hearts. You care about winning, but it's the souls and minds of the people around us. And what you call us to do is to to mirror your heart and character, to be salt and light in the world. And I pray that we might be able to do that. It's going to take faith in a big God to know that you're working even when we're not. So I pray that we would have trust in a glorious God this morning who has revealed himself most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.